Well, let's pray and ask for God's help. Brothers, we've just reflected on your great love for us. There's a sense in which we can intellectually grasp this and yet not experientially feel it. And so we thank you that you've given us such powerful pictures in your word to help us understand the nature and depth of your great love for us. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would take up your word and drive it deep into each one of our hearts so that we may know and feel your great love for us and be secure in that love that we may be able to uh, live this week in intimate and joyful fellowship with you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, relationships are, um, can be tricky. They, they're, they're complicated. Um, they don't always run smoothly, do they? Uh, married couples, believe it or not, can argue. Uh, conflict and tensions can arise. Um, but think about this. How bad have things got when the wife locks her husband out of the house? It's yet to happen to me. Uh, I would suggest things are pretty, that's a pretty tricky situation. And uh, that's kind of what was recorded in the Song of Songs. We considered it last time we looked at this, um, this book together. The husband returned uh, late at night to find the house locked up. His wife had retired to bed and seemed rather disinterested in getting out of bed uh, to open the door to let him in. And when she finally did, he was gone. And the whole thing became a bit of a, a nightmare, really. And in a state of panic, she headed out into the streets to search for her husband. Um, and she, before she found him, she experienced a, a very traumatic encounter with a night watchman before they finally met each other. Now, you could imagine the memory of that conflict. Well, it would linger, wouldn't it? It would stay with you. Um, you don't forget an incident like that. And into that uncomfortable space, lots of insecurities can grow. Negative thoughts, embarrassment can raise all sorts of fears. Have I blown it? Have I permanently damaged this relationship? Is there a way back to tenderness and affection? Have I ruined my marriage forever? Well, you can imagine these sort of thoughts going through the head. And perhaps we may even feel that about our relationship with God. Because we've been seeing that the song teaches, yes, teaches us, yes, about human relationships, but for it to be called the song of songs, it points us to an even more transcendent relationship of God for his people of Christ for his church, of Jesus for us, uh, who've put our trust in him. And so, uh, as Christians, we can make sinful choices. We can pursue things. We can pursue people that we know will cause distance between us and God and between us and God's people. Christians can become apathetic towards Jesus. 
Whole churches can become apathetic to God and his word. Ignoring him, growing cold in our affections, turning our faces away from the redeeming God. But perhaps in, in God's kindness, the prodigal person or even the prodigal church can wake up to the mess that they have created. A realization that we're in the pigsty in the far country because of our own folly, and we, we yearn once more to be back at the Father's house. But as we turn for home, we realize that the pain that we have caused, and we realize that there is a deep sense of shame in us, a lingering sense of unworthiness. We've blown it. How will God receive us? How will God see us? Maybe if we just keep our distance and, and sit at the back of the church, hopefully he'll tolerate our presence. But surely we have lost the right to joy and love and acceptance. Uh, we were all, after all, the ones who blew it. How could we expect the same sense of close fellowship and same sense of communion with the Lord that we once knew when we first trusted? How, how could it be even possible? And if that's how you're feeling in any way today, I think these verses from the Song of Songs would hold a, a great encouragement out for you. And I think there is wisdom here uh, for those who are married or hope to be married about how we move towards each other after a time of tension and conflict. Husbands, we could usefully learn from this husband in the Song of Songs. For this man has the wisdom to know that his wife needs his reassurance of continuing love and respect for her, even as she's made it kind of difficult. So husbands, I want to give you three headings of how this man wisely communicates to his wife. You might want to jot them down, because we'll finish by seeing how she responds. And if you need any motivation to the sermon today, it all ends pretty positively for everyone concerned. So let me give you three headings. Uh, let me tell you right up front, we'll put it up on the screen. Uh, in chapter 6, verses 4 to 10, he tells her she's awesome and unique. And in verses 11, 12, that she transports him to willing service. And lastly, he tells her she is beautiful and desired. And then we're going to hear her response uh, in, in, in the second half of verse 9 to 8, verse 4. Now, it's worth noting how he does not respond. He does not uh, replay the conflict. He doesn't replay what happened on the night before. He doesn't repeat a tired old list of past hurts and, and recall past failings. Now, how might this conversation have looked like if, you, if, if this had happened to you, if you'd been locked out of your house? Um, I don't know, but in, in my head, I could imagine I could have blown, I could have done very, something very different to this song, a song. I could have been thinking, I can't believe you locked me out of the house. You know, you finally get in. I can't believe you locked me out. I can't believe it. At my own house, what were you thinking? I had to go to my friend's house. I had to wake him up and, and ask him for somewhere to sleep. I mean, that's embarrassing for me. Can you imagine that? I can't believe you made me do that. It could have gone like that, couldn't it? 
No, no one's admitting to that. But the truth is, is that we can feel quite righteous in our anger at times, and, and our anger can feel so justified and right, and, and we think, I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. A, a, a bit of cold fury, perhaps, will, will help them realize uh, that they are totally in the wrong. Um, I'm going to put a little poem up that my wife, from time to time, has helpfully reminded me of. It's by Ogden Nash. I can just put the slide forward there. Um, to keep your marriage brimming with love in the loving cup whenever you're wrong admit it whenever you're right shut up <laughs> and my wife has lovingly shared this with me but I want you to notice with me that the husband in this song does something better than Mr. Nash's poem he reassures her of his love and respect for her, for she is awesome and unique. Open your Bibles up, please, again to uh, chapter 6, verse 4. Terza was a beautiful garden city in the north of Israel that served as a capital city for a time uh, when the kingdom was divided. And Jerusalem, obviously, was the capital city and the home of uh, King Solomon, an impressively fortified and protected city on a hill. Um, if you ever get the chance to go to the south of France, you should go to Carcassonne, and you will be amazed to see this medieval city. It's featured in a bunch of movies because it is such an impressive city. When you see this walled city, uh, you, it's so beautiful. Uh, the architecture just stops you in your tracks, and you admire it, you say, wow, he's awesome. And he, he wants her to know that that's how she makes him feel. He just sees her and wants to say, wow, her beauty is awe-inspiring, like an army in uniforms, marching before their king, parading their regimental colors. Her, there's a majesty about her that he sees, and he respects that. And in fact, he almost finds her a bit intimidating. Look at verse 4 again. You are as beautiful as Tirza, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as troops with banners. Turn your eyes from me. They overwhelm me. So he wants her to turn her eyes away from him because he's a bit intimidated by her. But he wants to keep looking at her. Her long, dark hair, her white teeth, not one has been pulled so far. Her rosy cheeks. She is awesome. And he wants her to know that he finds her so. And he considers her uniquely lovely. Look at how the numbers of women uh, described here gets bigger in verse, from verses 8 onwards. 60 queens there may be. And 80 concubines. And virgins beyond number. But my darlings, my perfect one, is unique, the only daughter of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines praised her. So there's lots of women in the world, but she is unique. That's how he, that's how he feels about her. That's how he sees her. There's no coldness in his response, is there? There's no place for belittling even despite the conflict they've just been through, there is a deep respect. 
there's a sense that he has the perfect person for him. My perfect one is unique. And from his perspective, uh, what he sees is obvious to all around. Uh, all the other women around, they praise her too. And we hear the friends praising the majesty of what they see in her. This time, not as troops uh, with banners, but the troops of heaven, the beauty of a moon, the awesomeness of the sun and the stars in the heavens. Look at verse 10. Who is this that appears like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars in procession? That is what he sees. Now, is this fanciful? Is this over the top? Well, I think it is so easy for us to lose sight of the awesome beauty of every human person. Um, let alone the person that we choose to marry. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, in an essay entitled The Weight of Glory, invited people to consider the uh, immortality of the people that we relate to in every day. And this is what he wrote in that essay. It was a talk originally. It was written down. This is what C.S. Lewis says. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption, such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people, he wrote. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. It's powerful, isn't it? We forget how awesome and beautiful every person that we meet is, let alone the one that we chose to marry. <laughs> Made in the image of God, every man and woman we meet is someone we should treat with dignity and honor for we are relating to kings and queens over God's creation even if that image is defaced because of sin it is still present and you know what there is something about true love that begins to glimpse the glory and the majesty of the person they love friends may look on and see this kind of uh, this loving look and kind of roll their eyes and think, my goodness, isn't love a strange distortion? I can't see that. But you know what? I think true love brings a focus 
clarity. For there are no ordinary people. There is a unique awesomeness to every person we meet. Who is this that appears like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars in procession? One day, my friends, this is how we will see each other in full glory. And almost incredibly, this is how God sees us, his people. This is what Jesus taught as he told the story of the prodigal. Uh, For while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. He had just blown half the family inheritance in profligate living in a far off country, left for home, told his dad, I wish he dropped dead, wasted it all. But look how the father greets him. The son begins the prepared speech. Father, I I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And what's the father's response? There's no coldness. There's no rehash. There's no replay of the failure, is there? Quick, bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. You see how the father restores the prodigal to honor and dignity and delights in him, over him, insists everyone else celebrates with him that the son is back. Now that's how God welcomes repentant sinners who turn for hope. I don't know, maybe there's someone in church today and you're just thinking, I've made a complete mess of my life and there's no hope for me. If you will repent and turn for home, there is this grace for you. Maybe there's some Christian friends and and You've known that grace and you've walked away. You've done foolish things. Is there a way back? There is this grace for you today. If you repent and turn to him, there's this grace for you today. Amazing grace. This is how the Lord Jesus sees us, his church. This is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who made himself poor to take poor people like us and make us rich forgiving our sins adopting us into his family he is transforming us into his image with ever increasing glory god's grace takes people deadened by sin and saves us makes us alive seats us in the heavenly realms with christ jesus we are adorned by his righteousness we are god's beautiful handiwork created in Christ Jesus. Christ's sacrificial love is moving the church to this day when we will be this perfect bride, prepared and gloriously ready for an everlasting honeymoon. This is our future. And as we hear the friends point out how she 
is like the appearing of the dawn, the fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars in heaven. Listen to how the Apostle Paul uh, describes the Christians in Philippi. He says to them, do everything without grumbling or arguing or so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. Then you will shine like stars as you hold firmly to the word of life. This is how Christ sees his church, shining brightly and gloriously in the world today. Amazing grace. We're the ones who damage the relationship. And yet God sees us in Christ and moves towards us with grace. So that's the first point. She's awesome and unique. Secondly, she transports him to willing service in verses 11 to 13. There's a lot of debate about exactly how to interpret the original Hebrew uh, of verse 12. It's described as the most difficult verse in the book. Um, But uh, back in chapter 6, verse 2, she speaks of her beloved having gone down to his garden. And in 6, verse 12, we hear his voice. Verse, um, well, from verse 11, I went down to the grove of nut trees to look at the new growth in the valley to see if the vines had budded or the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I realized it, my desire set me among the royal chariots of my people. So she's described herself as his garden. And with these metaphors of a fruitful garden, vines that have budded, pomegranates in bloom whose fruit is full of seeds, he sees not only her unique beauty, but all the potential for fruitfulness. Lovemaking, until only fairly recently in human history, was always connected with the potential of fertility. And that is why sex within marriage offers the most protection of of love and nurture for raising children. Because it takes a lot of commitment to raise and support a family. And uh, here is a man who loves this woman enough to have committed himself to a monogamous relationship of marriage. And he wants her to know he is fully committed to her. That she transports him to a willing place of service. His desire for her is not simply for a moment of of lovemaking, but for all the consequences of potential babies and uh, nappies and screaming kids and the delight of seeing your children grow up. He says, I'm all in for all of that. Now, why did God make us with such a powerful sex drive? A misdirected sex drive can cause much harm and be, you know, cause chaos. But what a wonderful thing to see children raised up in a loving, stable family and all the richness of love and joy as extended families. Uh, you see children grow up, get married, have children themselves. And the sex drive is part of the glue that just pulls all this together and makes it happen. And this man wants this woman to know he finds her awesome and unique, and he's committed to a fruitful relationship with her, and she so delights him that he's eager to serve her and care for her. And even as he speaks of his desire for her, we seem to hear his friends, perhaps male friends at this point, who've also noticed that she's quite attractive, and they seem a bit disappointed that she's walking away from them. Uh, Verse 13, come come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back that we may gaze on you. 
And then the husband reminds them, well, hey, 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 uh, my wife is not there for your uh, entertainment, like some dancing girl. She's not there for you to gaze upon. Um, he alone has the right to gaze at her beauty as the man who's committed himself to her in marriage. So he says, why would you gaze on the Shulamite as on the dance of Mahanaim? And thirdly, he, um, he gazes at her and he tells her, she is beautiful and desired in, in 6 verse 13 onwards. Earlier uh, in this song, uh, he's praised her beauty from the head downwards, and now he does so from the feet, moving his gaze upwards. And if there's any body insecurity on her part, he wants her to know that everything he sees in the privacy of their bedroom is beautiful. Her feet, her legs are the work of an artist. Her navel, her waist, her breast, her neck, her eyes, her nose, her head, her hair. She is his queen. He is captivated by her beauty. She delights him. And he wisely lets her know this. And men tend to be attracted by what they see. Women tend to care more about the warmth of the relationship. And so words are very important. And what he sees is very attractive to him. And he expresses his desire to enjoy what he sees. So, uh, remember the context. Uh, this is after the locked out of your own house incident. And um, there's no reproach. There's no coldness. There's no hardness in his response. He speaks words of respect and admiration, commitment and appreciation and desire. He wants her to be fully reassured of his love for her. And reassured of his love, all the awkwardness is gone, all doubts dispelled about the security of their relationship, and she is eager to give her love to him. And that's what we find in the second half of verse 9 of chapter 7. May the wine go straight over to, to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. There's no doubt in her mind. Come, my beloved. Let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes sent out their fragrance, and at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my beloved. Now, are we really talking about this in church? It appears that we are. Um, why? Well, because our loving creator knows how to give good gifts. At different times in church history, people have taught that to be truly spiritual, you need to follow some ascetic lifestyle. Abstain from certain foods and drink. Abstain from marriage. This is described by the Apostle Paul as false teaching and lies from deceiving spirits. For everything... Uh, God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected, he says, if it's in line with God's word and received with thanksgiving. And sex is one of those good gifts to be enjoyed exclusively within marriage. And here is a uniquely biblical way of understanding sex in a culture today that is so debased when it comes to its understanding of sex. The porn industry is morally wrong and perverted. 
Our culture is talking these days as if sex is a right. Sex is not something that is your right. It is not something you take. It's not something you consume. It's not about you focusing on yourself. It is something that within the commitment and security of marriage, you give and receive. Now, there's grace and forgiveness if we fall short in these matters of sex and relationships. And there is grace, too, to help us when we're single and when we're married to live up to these ideals. But after expressing how she wishes that she could more um, publicly express her affection for her husband in a time where you would only express that for your extended family, that's what our business was about, I wish you were like a brother. She just wants to show her affection for him publicly. She then returns to the charge to the unmarried daughters of Jerusalem in 8 verse 4. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Pure passion, sex without shame, is a wonderful possibility within marriage. But we must be so careful not to stir up such desires until the right time, with the right person in the right place, which is marriage. Now, within our congregation, um, we'll have people who are single, divorced, widowed, in marriages that are having problems, and uh, it's difficult right now. Is it cruel to preach on a book like this? Well, my answer is obviously no. For as we get close to this passion expressed here between a husband and his wife, we are only seeing a pale reflection of the passionate commitment and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. For he is the lover of our souls. These, this powerful, why did God make us sexual beings? To give us categories to understand how incredibly and passionately he loves us. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness, the Lord says. As we see the way that this man pursues fellowship and intimacy with his wife, we should see and know that Jesus desires intimacy and fellowship with us. For he sees his church as awesome and unique. God says of his people, you are the apple of my eye. Out of all the nations, I have known you, loved you, called you, saved you. The Lord Jesus has offered himself in willing service to redeem and restore us by humbling himself, by taking on human flesh, by taking the form of a very servant, by being willing to die even the death of crucifixion because he loves us. For he sees that the church is awesome and unique. He, that somehow, in some way, the church transports him to willing service. And this is all grace, is it not? 
who can explain love. It's mysterious how wonderful that he loves us and that the church is beautiful and to be desired. The church in its future, future perfection, the joy set before him was part of the reasons that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And my question to us today is what brings Jesus delight? What brings our God delight? And I want to suggest to you from the Song of Songs that we would want to draw near to him. That we'd want to respond to him. That is what brings him delight. How delighted God is when his people draw near to his throne of grace. When we gather as a church to express our enjoyment and the wonder of his love. Listen again to Isaiah 62. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. And we've heard this bridegroom rejoicing over his bride, haven't we? As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And so we are invited as forgiven, restored people to go into this week and enjoy our relationship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and by his Holy Spirit who resides within us. That's what he desires. That's what, that's what delights him. Are you planning on making this such a week? A week where you're going to fellowship with God. A week where you're going to enjoy your relationship with Christ. A day where you're going to keep in, a week where you're going to keep in step with the Spirit. How are you planning on, on making time for your communion with God this week? Next Sunday, we're going to have communion. The symbols of his sacrifice and love, his passion for us. Let's prepare ourselves this week. Let's make sure our relationships are right with each other. Let's come uh, with hearts of joy and thanksgiving to share this table fellowship with God. Whatever the past, you're welcome if you're repentant sinners. Come. Come to the table. Know that you are loved. Let's pray. Father, we come sensing our need for repentance that we don't see other people with the glory that we should see them. And sadly, at times where we don't uh, see the ones that we have married with this same vision of respect and love, we ask your forgiveness. And we ask your forgiveness that we... We receive so many blessings from you, and um, yet we don't kind of enjoy that fellowship that you've made possible. And so we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you'd stir each one of us this week ahead, that we more consciously enjoy our communion with you, and uh, that our lives would be an act of worship and, and sacrifice and service and joy 